Welcome to Oslo International Church's podcast, where we share weekly reflections from our community of faith. If you'd like to explore more of our resources or join us for a service, visit our website at oslointernational.church. And now, here's the message from our last Sunday service with Pastor Mike on Stornagel. Ruth, Ruth, James, and Jane walk into a pub. They get a table and they order some drinks. Wine, beer, and some farm-to-table, locally-sourced kombucha concoction of some sort. Okay? Who ordered what? And you're all now both wondering what on earth I'm talking about and also kind of curious about the answer, right? Who ordered what? It sounds like the start of a joke, right? It sounds like the start of a joke. Ruth, James, and Jane walk into a pub. What's the punchline? But it's actually our setup for the semester, for our semester ahead. We have been for a while now talking about the book of Psalms. We do that every summer in OIC. Summer got a bit long because we were still figuring out some things. Um, and we are still in this sort of long, year-long uh, theme in which we've been exploring the liturgical calendar a bit closer and just paying a bit more attention to that. Started all the way last year when we started with Advent and this is what we call the, the seasons of the cycles of Advent. And then we went through Epiphany and talked about that. And then we went through Easter and through all of these different. And then when we came into what is called the season of Trinity, we started with the Psalms. And that's Still the season we're in. We're going to talk more about that later. But now we're going into the next thing after Psalms. And we're going to talk about, about Ruth. And we're going to talk about James. We're going to spend some time diving into the letter of James, which is part of the, of the Christian collection of writings in our Bible. So the stuff that was written after Jesus and after the first century. And we'll also spend some time diving into the book of Ruth, which is part of the Hebrew Scriptures, so the older part of our Christian Bibles. But before we do that, though, I wanted to tell you why. Before we go and spend time with James and spend time with Ruth, I wanted to tell you why. And that's why I invited Ruth, James, and Jane to the pub to share a meal. Sharing meals is, a, is an exercise and a practice of fellowship of being together. And if it's a good meal, which means that it's not only good food, but it's also good company and good conversation, well, then the conversation flows, and we take pleasure both in our common ground and in our discovering our differences. So, who's at the table? Who's at the table? Well, Ruth. Who's Ruth? We find the story of Ruth, as I said, in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the Christian version of this, because if you open a, a Jewish Bible, the books are in a different order. Right? We share the same basic Scriptures, they're just organized a bit differently. But in the Christian Bible, you will find the book of Ruth right before 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And it's there because Ruth tells the story of, well, Ruth, but it also tells the story of the genealogy of King David. That's why it's placed there. We'll go more into that. But Ruth is a Moabite. 
And the Moabites were people that were neighbors to the ancient Israelites, but that were considered their enemies. And they were considered their enemies because during the time in which Israel settled in the land of Canaan, there were conflicts with the Moabites, and the Moabites were accused of not being hospitable with these wandering people who were still without a land. And because of that, there's a whole bunch of stuff in the first five books called the Pentateuch of the Bible about how Moabites are just bad people and you should not deal with them. And there are enemies and we will never forgive them. And Ruth is about a Moabite woman who, who, who marries to, okay, so Naomi is an Israel, Israelite woman, a Hebrew woman. She goes to the land of Moab, of Moab together with her husband because of a famine. Her husband dies. Her kids, who were born in Israel, marry a Moabite woman, which was, by the way, a no-no, but we'll get into that. And one of these that they marry is Ruth. And then they both die, and Ruth and Naomi uh, are left, and, her, and, and the other <laughs> are left, and, uh, well, we'll hear the story. But that's Ruth. And Ruth eventually goes back to the land of Israel together with Naomi, gets established there, and the book of Ruth tells the story of how that happens, how these two widows go back to the land of Israel, navigate poverty, exclusion, and all of that struggle. And eventually, Ruth gets to marry a local man called Boaz and is, gets restored, gets social security again, and becomes part of, of the people and becomes the grandmother of David. That's Ruth. I'm not going to say more about her. But then there's James. James is at the table. Who's James? Well, James was a leader at the, ch the early church in Jerusalem. So right after Jesus died, resurrected, ro rose from the dead and resurrected, same thing, <laughs> ascended to heaven, uh, the people are there in a community and they're figuring out, okay, what, how do we live now? How do we, what does this mean? Uh, and in Jerusalem, and these very, often, very soon they spread out, but in Jerusalem you have some people who are leaders of the Christians in Jerusalem. One of them is James. And James, there's discussions back and forth who exactly were James because there's different, uh, different people. There are at least two important James in the New Testament. By the way, James is a really weird way to call him. Uh, it's a translation into English for some reason. It would actually make more sense linguistically to call him Jacob because that's where name comes from, Jacob. But for some reason, it became James. Uh, so we'll just call him James to avoid confusion. But James is spoken of as a half-brother of Jesus. Now, exactly what that means, we don't know. It's uh, one possibility that he was a child of uh, Joseph from before Joseph married Mary. We don't know. But anyway, he is understood to be a half-brother of Jesus. He's the family of Jesus, which means that probably, by what we know, he was very resistant to Jesus in the beginning because we get those stories in the gospel. But eventually, he came around. He came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and he became a prominent local leader in Jerusalem. Uh, and James was so important that he is actually named in the Council of Jerusalem, which was one of the first times in which the church had to gather and, and make some important decisions and write some official documents which had to do with if non-Jewish people could be Christians or not. That's James. And James also wrote a letter called the Letter of James, which we find in the New Testament. And the Letter of James, what is interesting about it, is that it is a letter addressed to the churches. So it's 
not addressed to a specific congregation like you get often with Paul, right into the Romans, to the Galatians, or to a specific city. Uh, the letter of James is what we call a circular letter. So it was meant to be sent around. And especially, James very likely had uh, Jewish Christians in mind because those were his flock. Those were the people he was used to dealing with. And it's one of the oldest letters of the New Testament, written already in the, probably in the 40s or 50s of the first century, right? That's James. But what about Jane? What about Jane? Well, Jane, Jane is Jane. It could be Joe. It could be Janice. It could be Ula Nurman. I don't know. Jane is you and me and someone else. That's Jane. Jane is someone figuring out life and work and relationships, and maybe faith plays a role in all of this. So that's Jane. Welcome to the table, Jane. And what will they talk about? What could they talk about? What do you talk about when you meet people in, in a table for a meal? Try to find a common ground, maybe. So maybe they could talk about metaphors. Maybe they could talk about metaphors. It's an exciting topic for any dinner party, right? I don't know, maybe I'm in the wrong family. Keep on talking about metaphors. But James is definitely into it. James is definitely into it. Metaphors, figures of speech, images to speak about something. And the letter that James wrote, the one that we will spend some weeks talking about, is packed full of metaphors. It's almost like James cannot give a single instruction or piece of advice without using a metaphor, a figure of speech, an image. It's all over the place. So James is all in, yeah, let's talk about metaphors. Ruth, Ruth doesn't really speak in metaphors. Her manner of speaking and living is really a lot more straightforward, often uncomfortably so. The metaphor person in the book of Ruth is Naomi, her mother-in-law. Right? Naomi is the one who does metaphors even with her own name. When they're returning to Israel, she goes, oh, don't call me Naomi anymore because Naomi means pleasant, calls me Mara, which means bitter. So Naomi is playing around with metaphors with her own name as well. Not Ruth. But even if Ruth doesn't speak in metaphors, the story of Ruth has a strong metaphoric meaning for the traditions that tell it, that repeat it, and that interpret it. The story of Ruth is full of stereotypes, as I told you Mentioned already, right? Ruth is a Moabite widow, a foreigner of a hated ethnic group, and a widow. And she's with Naomi, who is also a widow who has lost both her husband and her sons. And in the way that society worked at the time, it means that she was completely destitute. Because any right to care, to land, to any of that things was always through the male. And if there's no male connected to a woman, she was completely destitute. No land, no one to take care of her, no economy, you're done for. Very much a stereotype. She didn't just lose her husband, she lost her husband and her two kids. 
And then she moves to Israel, and there's Boaz, you know, who is this garden redeemer who owns land and is honorable. It's full of stereotypes. And the whole book, the way the book has been told of is often, maybe if you grew up in a Christian setting, you've heard of this story through talking about Boaz as a guardian redeemer. And that becomes a metaphor for Jesus. That's how this is often used, right? So even though Ruth doesn't speak in metaphors, this, this, that's how it, it functions. The story is so full of stereotypes that it, it, it's almost like a play on a stage. We'll get to that when we spend more time with Ruth. But what about Jane? Well, Jane is just looking and smiling and sipping on her beverage. You thought I was going to give the answer there, right? This is all very interesting, Ruth says. But she doesn't feel like she has much to say. So Ruth wonders if perhaps the topic of metaphors can feel too abstract. So in Ruth's straightforward manner, she says, well, it's not really about how people talk about uh, what should be done. It's about how you lean into the doing, how you live it, how you do it, how you express what you believe is right with your very body. And Jane Jane nods. (laughs) emphatically, you know, he looks like one of those dashboard dogs. You know, he's like, yeah, 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 that's it. That's what we're talking about. Ruth knows what she's talking about. She has a wonderful speech in the beginning of her story, which is very often quoted in in faith context. You know, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Often quoted in, in weddings, even though the story isn't really about romance, but we'll get to that. But where you see The strength of Ruth's faith and beliefs is not in that speech per se, but it is really in her deeds. It is what she does, where she puts herself, how she acts, what she does with her body, going places, working hard under the hot sun, being there. That's where it shows. That's what changes things in the very society and cultural context and community where she is walking into. And James? Well, James has actually been accused of arguing too strongly that faith must be expressed in in deeds. Famously, the reformer Martin Luther had reservations about James because James is so emphatic in saying that, and maybe if you know one quote from James, this is probably the one you know, faith without deeds is dead. If you ever heard that, that's from James. But what about Jane? She doesn't know what to say. She doesn't know what to say. So she orders another round of the thing she's drinking. And she finds James a bit scary because he speaks so intently. He's an intense guy. And she admires Ruth. She agrees that one should live out what one believes. But how does all of this hang together? Like the metaphors y'all were talking about before, the things we do, deeds, you called it, James? And well, faith? How does all of this hang together? That's Jane's question. Because Jane says, we were invited here by this pastor guy. I'm the one to put them all in that room. And my question is, what does faith have to do with it all? Or maybe I can ask it differently if I'm going to be honest, says Jane. Where is God in all of this? 
Where's God in all of this? And James and Ruth, surprisingly, they sit up and go, right? It's really not that obvious, is it? Believe us, we get it. So here's the thing with Ruth and James that we don't often notice because these writings are, well, they're in our Bible. Sometimes we just brush through this and we don't even notice these things. But here's the thing. God is remarkably absent from the book of Ruth. And Jesus is not nearly as present as you would expect in the letter of James. And this is what I mean. God only shows up in speech in the book of Ruth. When people say, for instance, when Boaz says, may God bless you to Ruth. But the narrator does not mention God. And God does not show up as a direct actor. You don't have anyone speaking directly on behalf of God as you have in the prophets. You don't have the narrator saying God did this or God did that. You only have people referring to God in speech. And that's it. Which means that our understanding of God as an actor is theological. It is not literal. Now James, James only mentions, this also we just fly by, right? But James only mentions Jesus a couple of times in his book. I think three times. That's it. And he doesn't really refer to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection directly at this point. He just goes, he refers just sort of indirectly to Jesus. And then he goes into all these things, but he's not talking all the time about Jesus' death, life, and resurrection. And that's why, that's why Ruth and James are in the pub with Jane. Because the question we bring with us into this semester is a question about faith in time and in history. And also a question about faith in our time and in our history. It's the question of faith for what we could call ordinary times. Ordinary times with all their tragedy, all their beauty, and all their sense of silence, maybe. The season in the liturgical calendar that we are in is also often called uh, ordinary season. In the Anglican Church, for instance, it will more often be referred to as the ordinary season, not the season of the Trinity. That's how the Norwegians call it in the Norwegian liturgical calendar. It's the same season. You can find both names. But it's often called the ordinary season before Advent comes. Now, it's a, bit, it's a bit of a misuse of the name because it's actually called the ordinary season because it, the Sundays are ordered. But it's kind of an interesting play with the words. Because the thing with the ordinary season is that it's the season in which nothing happens. And it's the longest season in the liturgical calendar. And there's nothing happens. What I mean by nothing happens is, is Advent is all about waiting for Jesus and Mary gets pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And then there's Christmas. Jesus is born. And then there's Epiphany, the understanding of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. God himself is walking among us, Emmanuel, God with us. You have Easter, Jesus' death and resurrection and the implications of that up to his ascension. And then 
ordinary season. Well, I jumped Lent. It's in the middle there, right? But it's still, it's the passion, it's the waiting, it's the passion of Christ. And then ordinary season. The longest season, all the way from Easter up to Advent again. And that's most of life, isn't it? There's no, these big events, they're constrained to very small places in time and history. And then there's all the rest of the time in which people are just trying to live. And what does faith have to do with that? What does faith look like when nothing happens? Or when the things that happen seem extraordinarily ordinary? And on the one hand, Ruth and James really relate to this question of faith in ordinary times. Because James is trying to lead and speak to a people that are figuring out what now. Jesus ascended and we have to live. What does that look like? And they're figuring out the questions of daily life with their faith. And how will they literally live for the next day? Because most Christians in the early century were very poor. Or how do I relate to the Jewish leaders that think that we're abandoning our faith? How do we relate to the Roman Empire? How do we navigate all of this stuff? What can we eat? What can't we eat? What changed? You know? And Ruth, even though it's there to sort of say something else about David, but her story is a story about a, a widow in a village somewhere trying to make ends meet. Somebody met by the kind of tragedy that meets people in ordinary lives. It's not a massive war, it's not a massive earthquake. Her family died. She lost her husband. She lost her kids. They have to figure it out. And they're poor. Right? So on one hand, Ruth and James really relate to this question of faith in ordinary times. They can also come out as weird or ironic. And sometimes they do because of the angle. We get at it. On one hand, because James is a general letter, as I mentioned before. It's a letter for everyone. And it's always risky to apply general instruction to specific situations just like that. And if we try to do that with James, then it becomes a bit off. And we'll see why. And Ruth's history, well, the problem with Ruth's history is that it has a happy ending and it plays out a bit like a fairy tale. So on one hand, it is a story ripe with tragedy, but depending how we tell it, we can get locked up in a happy ending and it becomes sort of a Cinderella kind of tale in which Ruth is good looking and she's poor, but she gets met by, you know, Prince Charming Boas and everything is fine in the end. And then we miss out on the good stuff. So what do we do with these stories? And this is when Jesus walks into the pub. And he walks into the pub and he tells a story. And the story that Jesus tells is a story that he tells in the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel according to St. Matthew. And I'll, I'll read it for you. You don't have to open up or you can follow it on the screen if you have it there. Uh, chapter 7 from verse 24 to 27. Jesus walks into the pub, meets them at the table, and he tells this story. He says, Therefore... 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat up against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus tells the story, and Jane goes, okay, <laughs> thanks, I guess. And we're back to the metaphors, right? We're back to the metaphors. Now, I won't go crazy on my setup here, and I'll just tell you why I asked Jesus to join in and tell this exact parable, okay? This parable comes in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most straight-on-your-face speeches, and on your faith, uh, speeches of Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, a speech that is so challenging with going into itty-gritty things of everyday life, and we're like asking, what do we do with this? And at the end of this, parable, uh, of this sermon, Matthew has Jesus telling this story. And the parable is an invitation for faith being lived in real life, which all of the Sermon on the Mount is really, but for life being lived in real life through a constant exercise of wisdom. And this parable becomes an image for understanding what Jesus has said before and what this means for our life. And it is this metaphor, this image of digging deep roots. Now, there's something about this parable that really changed for me when I understood, when I read a bit more about one, one way of interpreting this parable that has to do with the specific geography of the place. Because I remember growing up, and, you know, we would sing this song in Sunday school about, you know, don't build your house on the sand, build it on the rock, you know, build it on the mountain. And I was like, why would you even do that? Like, why would you build a house on the sand? Even as an eight-year-old, I could see that my little castle would not withstand a couple of waves, right? And it's a bit like, but then, and, and we often just talk about it like that. But then I found out that there's something about the specific geography of Palestine in that area in which in many areas you have a layer of very soft, sandy kind of ground. And below that, you have proper solid foundation ground, stone. So if you're going to build, you have to dig deeper than that first layer of soft stuff so that you anchor the foundation of your house where the solid stuff is. And it's that exercise of digging deep and making sure you're on the solid stuff that makes it so that your house withstands the weather. So it's not about where you put it in that sense, because that's a bit like, but it's about how you go deep and try to figure out how the foundations will deal with the things that will hit it where it is. It's about knowing your context and believing that it is possible to dig deep enough to be solid enough in that context to withhold and withstand the challenges that that context and place in time and history brings. 
And this is an exercise of wisdom. This is what scripture calls wisdom. The scriptural tradition calls wisdom. We see it in different places. We see it in Job. We see it in Ecclesiastes. We see it in Proverbs. We see it throughout. It's very explicitly in those. But the question is, how do you exercise wisdom? How do you figure out how this makes a difference to where we are? How do you dig deep foundations into your understandings of faith and truth so that they can deal with the realities of actual life? And this is what Ruth and James do. This is what they do and invite us to do. To dig deep foundations and exercise the wisdom of faith in the context of everyday life. If you want to get that about them, if you want to understand what they're writing and their stories in this way, we need to pay attention to what they're doing and not just to what's being directly said. We need to pay attention to the story. We need to pay attention to the exercise. We can't come to it expecting to come out with one-liners that will tell us exactly what to do in our situation today. We need to pay attention to the story. We need to pay attention to what's being done. If we don't pay attention, this is a good way of understanding it, is looking at the other way around. If we don't pay attention to what they're doing as an exercise of wisdom, these stories and these writings become deeply impoverished and risk becoming irrelevant. If we don't pay attention to the story of Ruth and what's going on and get too hooked up in the happy ending or in that beginning, well, Ruth gets her agency removed. And we don't get what's happening to that community and to herself by the way she is living, by the way she is being in that context. There's a, a scene in the story when Boaz questions Ruth, or when Ruth questions Boaz, sorry, and says, why, did you, why are you noticing me? Why are you paying attention to me? And Boaz answers, I've been told all, you, all, all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz gets it. Why did you pay attention? Be seen what you have done. What you have done has challenged us. We should pay attention to the story or else Ruth disappears and it becomes about Boaz. And we don't get the wealth and the richness of what she's doing. And we'll go into that. James, well, James gets his actual work ignored. If we get too hooked up, and uh, I want to read from James chapter 3. Here you go. James chapter 3 from verse, uh, verse 13. Just one verse. But when James asks, who is wise and understanding among you, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. And we'll talk more throughout the, the, the next weeks about how this idea of wisdom operates in the Jewish context. But he is asking this and by asking this, he's also showing what he himself is doing. He's trying to figure out what does this life 
of faith mean as it is live? If we do pay attention to what they're doing, then we are really immensely blessed by reading these stories and these writings. Because then we find that James' words, they invite us to an exercise of wisdom. And the question that James brings us is how does faith apply in practice? If we're too quick on just saying, well, James did this, so we do that, and we're not paying attention to how James is struggling with his context to understand how does faith apply here, we miss the biggest question, the question of wisdom, the question of how does faith apply in practice, which is the question we need to ask ourselves. And if we pay attention to Ruth's life and story, it invites us to an exercise of wisdom, which is how does life challenge how we understand and live our faith? Ruth, with her presence as an immigrant, despised, widowed, poor woman in the middle of a people who despised her people, and the way she's being there challenges people to say, what does our image How does our image about the Moabites have to be changed by this woman who is showing this immense kindness and generosity towards her mother-in-law, who is acting in these ways that make us go like Boaz? I've seen what you're doing, and it speaks of God. How does life challenge how we understand and live our faith? This means we don't come to life thinking that we got it all figured out because we have stuff written down. No, we come and bring these things together in an exercise of wisdom. How does faith apply in practice? How is it lived? How is it embodied? And how does life challenge how we understand and live our faith? And that is what Jane is trying to figure out. That's what she's trying to live out. How does, faith, how does faith apply in practice and how life challenges how she understands and lives faith? And they're all gathered there because they believe in this image, in my head at least. <laughs> they believe that there is wisdom in faith and in scriptures. You don't see God as described as an actor in the book of Ruth, but you see God. (laughs) You don't see Jesus being referred to directly in the letter of James, but he is there. They believe that there is wisdom in faith and in scriptures and these stories and that it can lead us to live and to live better in community and towards the communities around us, better in Christ, better into eternity and how eternity is here. That's why they gather. That's why they make sense around this table. And we, in any case, as a Christian community of faith, we believe that there is wisdom in faith, there is wisdom in scriptures, there is wisdom in these stories we tell and these songs we sing and these prayers we mutter. There is wisdom. There is the possibility of working out faith into life. And life 
being part of our faith. That it is possible, that there is a wisdom that is profoundly anchored in a God of love. Not just the love of God, but a God of love, of God who is present. A wisdom that believes that it can be expressed in the world. And a wisdom that must be anchored in this loving God. Because that's what keeps it on the road of compassion and hope and kindness and of actually being transformed. And we'll see how that plays out in Ruth, how that plays out in James. How these two books are, in one sense, very uncomfortable. Ruth, if you dare to go into the itty-gritty of it and don't just get the fairy tale part of it. And James, if you dare to work with it, it's one of the avo- most, probably one of the most avoided letters of the New Testament because it makes us so uncomfortable. But they believe that it's possible, that that exercise is worth it. So Ruth, James and Jane walk into a pub and they order drinks. Wine, beer, and kombucha. So who ordered what? My answer is Ruth ordered beer just because beer is made of barley and the whole story is about the barley harvest. And James ordered wine because it's first century Israel and that's what people drank. That's what Jesus gives to his disciples. So you can think that he's presiding Holy Communion. He's a leader. So he orders wine. And Jane ordered kombucha because I wanted to make her millennial or Gen Z, or whatever she is. I don't know. I don't know what these things are. But she's like trying to figure out life now. But it doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't really matter what they ordered. It matters that they're around the table. And that's what we do as a community of faith. Both metaphorically and literally. Like literally, when we gather around the table of the Lord for Holy Communion, when we gather for church coffee, when we gather in our homes, or when we just gather like this and we're not around the table, but we're sharing the stuff that nurtures us and we're sharing the lives we move in. And we're trying to figure out. And we need to, tr- to keep on trying to figure it out. We need to keep on sharing, we need to keep on coming. That's what we want to do with Ruth, with James and Jane on these coming weeks. But that's what we want to keep doing. That's what we have been doing. And our prayer is that we may discern the ways in which the Spirit is with us as we do that. And that we may discern it in our minds, that we may discern it in our relationships, that we may discern it in our bodies. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards you, towards the ordinary in your life, towards that which is difficult and that which brings joy, that he may bring you of his peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve each other, serve the world, Serve the Lord joyfully.
Do you want to stay connected with us? Check out our website at oslointernational.church to discover more about our community, access additional resources, and join us in our faith journey. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.